Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Frederick Laloux. Frederick is originally from Belgium and is a former associate partner with McKinsey & Company and holds an MBA from INSED and a degree in coaching from the Newfield Network. Frederick's book, Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness, has sold upwards of 400,000 copies, self-published, and is considered by many to be the most influential business book of this decade. Frederick Laloux is a sensitive visionary. He has a way of seeing not just what's breaking down in our cultural institutions, but what wants to be born. And he's applied his very sharp intelligence and good heart to organizational life, to business life, and what might be possible for organizations of the future to reflect the deep spiritual growth and the growth of human consciousness that we're now undergoing. Here's my conversation with Frederick Laloux. Your book, Frederick, Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness, supposes that there is something called the next stage of human consciousness. So you're working within a model that has consciousness evolving. Can you share with our listeners what that model is? Yeah, um, it's actually based on a whole number of models. You know, there's so many people who've looked at this question of how does human consciousness develop, right, within one human being in her lifetime or his lifetime, but also humanity um, historically. Right? We've had these leaps and everybody who looked into this seems to come to the same conclusion that humanity doesn't just evolve slowly, linearly, but makes these leaps over time and grows into new worldviews, new forms of consciousness. Right? And Ken Wilber has written about this and you know, psychologists like Robert Keegan from Harvard has written about this um, and Lovinger. And so there's a great number of people. and. Um, Ken Wilber in particular has contrasted a lot of these models and shown that 
um, in many ways, they often say the same things, right? We had um, a general sense of worldview that existed with hunter-gatherer societies. And then when we made the leap to agrarian societies, you know, the, the outlook and the consciousness changed. And it happened again with the scientific and industrial revolution. And many people believe that, you know, we're just starting to grow into the next stage. And that has profound implications on all sorts of domains. And I looked in particular at the implications for organizations and management. So this next stage, how would you characterize it? Um, there's so many ways to talk about it, but one way to talk about it is the really the discovery that we're, that we're more than our egos, right? That there is um, some deeper part within um, that that whispers, you know, that um, helps us, that guides us into what we want to do with our lives. Um, and, and that opens up a whole different domain um, for consciousness and, and action. Um, and, and in particular, when you look at leadership, um, and even more broadly, if you think strategically, um, you can start to apply that same consciousness to organizations, you know, what if organizations had their own um, inner motive, had their own thing that they wanted to manifest in the world, had their own consciousness, um, and we, rather than just with our egos wanting to impose a certain direction, were actually able to listen to what the organization wants to be, wants to become in the world. Mm. Well, no, first of all, when you talk about the move beyond the human ego as a stage of human evolution, I imagine the Sounds True audience feeling very resonant with that. They get that. And listeners may or may not have asked this next question, well, what does that mean for businesses and for our organizational life? What does that mean when we start to discover we're not our ego? Okay, but now you brought in this other thought that the organization could have its own life. Now, just bear with me here for a moment, Frederick, because, you know, Sounds True works with a lot of soul-based teachers of different kinds, and some people would say that an organization has its own soul, its own being, outside even of the people who are necessarily working there. They're partnering with a type of soul force. How do you see that? Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting how, if you look at artists, so many of them say that the book they wrote or the song that they just wrote, you know, wasn't really theirs. You know, it just came to them. Right, um, it's it's almost a universal phenomenon that that artists experience, and often people who found organizations um, talk about this in the same way. They often say, you know, this was just something that wanted to manifest through me. Um, and what is interesting is that there seems to be now a readiness for more and more people, including organizational leaders, to look at organization in that way of saying organizations aren't just a collection of people and assets that we have to steer with strategic plans, um, but could it be that the organization has its own soul, its own sense of direction, its own sense of what it wants to manifest in the world, um, and that, that we're there to help it achieve that, to listen to where it wants to go and help it achieve that. Now, the book, Reinventing Organizations, talking about artists here who receive an inspiration, this idea came to you 
to look at human evolution and what's needed in organizational life. Who knew at the time that this book would sell upwards of 400,000 copies as a self-published book and become really one of the most influential and important business books of the past decade. Tell us a little bit about that story, that process of how this idea came to you to apply your talent and background to this question of organizations, I'm going to say it, beyond ego. Yeah, it actually came in a bit of a moment of, of crisis. Um, at some point in, in 2011, I felt a sudden sadness and, and lack of energy, which I really couldn't place because um, everything was going so well in my life, in my, my personal life, in my professional life. And it took me two or three weeks to understand or at least you have an interpretation of what was happening. And that was that I could no longer work as a consultant and coach and facilitator to these large corporations that I was working with. Um, and I had loved that work. It felt meaningful. Um, I had often very profound conversation behind closed doors with powerful executives and, and executive committees. And that felt like very meaningful work. But really from one day to the next, there was something in me that said that that work was no longer possible. Um, and I, I had read you know, Ken Wilbur and other people um, and, and knew about these stages of consciousness. And so I had some language around this um, to say that I was no longer able to work with these modern or orange, quote unquote, you know, to use um, Wilbur's color coding of these stages. I, I was no longer work, able to work with these modern organization, there was something there that was just too cold, too soulless. There was something about me simply walking into these, you know, these often, you know, grand lobbies with marble and glass of these banks and, you know, chemical companies. And there was just something in there that, that just, I, I could no longer participate with, you know, people were running around and doing their next midterm planning and next year's budget. And, and I just wanted to tell them, do you still believe any of that? So there was obviously a part of me that had evolved beyond how these organizations were set up. There was a part of me that, if I was being honest to myself, realized that whatever good work I was doing, working individually or with executive teams, I really wasn't having much impact. Um, for a while, I was opening up a space for valuable, deep conversations to happen. But as soon as I, I left that space, the the structures of the organizations themselves were so unhealthy that people would go right back to the kind of behaviors that you see in, in pretty much all of these large organizations. And so pretty much from one day to the next, I told all my clients that I was no longer going to work with them. Um, and that brought up a question, okay, but then, then what's next? You know, what's, you know, what's my source of income and what's my identity and what am I going to do? And then I realized that that wasn't, actually the right question to ask, even though it was the obvious one, and that the right question to ask was, what would be the most meaningful thing I could do with my life right now and, and trust that something would come out of it and that the universe would provide some form of income? And, and with that question, um, there was an obvious answer, which is, okay, if I can no longer work with these organizations that look at the world from this modern orange perspective, um, what would organizations look like that would be founded by people who have done 
a bit of inner or spiritual journey and look at the world from a different perspective and how would they structure and run organizations? And that started me on this research where I started looking for um, these fabulous organizations that I describe in the book that have been founded by people who, who sort of in the same way as I was, simply were no longer available to run organizations in traditional ways and were looking for something else. Now, Frederick, we're going to have to get this color coding out of the way. We're going to have to cover this. For people who are hearing modern orange, he was working for some corporate bank and he's calling it orange, what do you mean? Describe the color coding system and the type of next stage organizations that you write about you call teal organizations. So how you get to this teal apex. <laughs> Yeah, it's certainly not a last stage, but it's the one we're growing into. Um, yeah, I simply borrowed the this color coding uh, that Ken Wilber uses, um, and it you know it basically uh, goes through all of these historical stages, um, saying for example that the agrarian stage he calls it amber, um, and then the this stage that we've inherited from the industrial and scientific revolution, sort of modern mechanistic stage, he calls that orange. And that's the stage, really, that's the kind of management that we all have grown up with. You know, that's the kind of management that is being taught in business schools and in most business books. Um, and then so the postmodern stage um, is green in Wilbur's color coding. And then this sort of more holistic integral stage um, that is just starting to show up. Um, is teal, right? And so I specifically researched organizations that were um, founded or at some point taken over by people who look at the world through these lenses. Um, and so from that perspective, most likely just won't be comfortable in doing management as we're told we should be doing it, uh, you know, which is, you know, two stages earlier in this sort of mechanistic modern stage. Now, just a small clarification when you said teal, certainly not the last stage. So here we're in this emerging stage called teal. What's beyond that? Where are we going, futurist Frederick? Yeah. Well, it's not me, the futurist. It's you know these different people who've researched that. And um, our knowledge about stages beyond teal, frankly, you know, from the different people who've researched that, um, you know, are much less solid because the number of people who seem to have grown into that perspective, you know, much, much rarer. Um, and there aren't that many um, psychologists or, or researchers who, are even, who themselves are in that stage and are able to formulate it well. But it, it seems like the stage beyond that that we're, um, is appearing that is sometimes called turquoise um, is the stage that we discover when, when we're not only discovering that we're not our egos, you know, that we have this this inner voice, this inner self, um, this inner soul, but that actually there is beyond that a big self um, that, you know, where everything else is interconnected and where people start to yearn to transcend that small self um, for something larger, you know, even more interconnected. Um, and, you know, and people become much less interested in their own personal development um, and much more interested in how consciousness of the whole field rises. 
And quite frankly, I'm out of my depth here. Um, so I'm just parroting what some researchers that have said. I'm not sure I understand this perspective um, in any detail. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now I want to talk directly to that person who was listening to you describe your experience working within the banking system and with your corporate clients and says, you know, I kind of feel that way. I kind of feel right now as I'm listening to this that I'm putting my time and energy into a job that doesn't quite fit. But, you know, Frederick, he went off and decided to write a book. And, you know, that seems I mean, good for him. I'm glad he was able to do what was meaningful for him. When I ask what would be meaningful, I get some ideas, but they're not necessarily tied to paychecks. And I can't just go make a move right now. That would be I have a family to support or that's too risky. Can you talk to that person? Oh, I have so much, I have so much sympathy for that, right? Um, the other day I was talking to a woman I have a lot of respect for called Mickey Kashtan, and she says, uh, to put it starkly, right? And often it feels like we have a choice between spiritual suicide and financial suicide, mm -hmm. right? We, we just live at this uh, moment of transformation where if we're willing to open our eyes, we realize how incredibly unhealthy um, our, a lot of our current systems are and unhealthy to our human spirits. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the, the new economy is barely born. And so how do we make a living? I'm incredibly sympathetic to that question. Um, one thing I can say is that in the last few years, there has been an explosion of organizations who are um, in the process of making that leap. Um, there's an explosion of, of the number of organizations whose leaders feel like, I no longer want to do this old way and are experimenting. And so if that's something that feels congruent with how you look at the world, go out there and find out about organizations that are making that leap and see if you can work with them. How would someone who's on the job hunt know, oh, you know, yeah, that organization, they're not just talking the talk, but they're walking the walk. I mean, I've been hearing more and more from people, people I know in my life who say, you know, God, I'm so disappointed, Tammy. I went, I worked for this organization. I was so hopeful. But then as it turned out, you know, my manager, he blah, blah, blah. And then they go ahead and they tell me some, you know, horror story about how it actually unfolded for them. Yeah. One thing I've noticed is the organizations who are really earnestly pursuing this are the ones that seem to be talking least about this because they, in all humility, realize that, it, that they're on a journey. So there's this whole field which really feels pretty yucky. Um, that's called employer branding, where you apply the whole, you know, all of the marketing toolkit to pretend that you're this wonderful employer and to try and attract the best talents. And when I see this, I would be very suspicious. And when you go and meet organizations who are earnestly pursuing this direction, you just notice it in the conversations. There's just something, some form of authenticity um, that exists in the relationship that makes you feel like this is a different place. Um, and I'm sure that candidates who speak with you, Tammy, it sounds true, must feel that. You know, I'm sure that there are conversations that people have when they talk with you that they don't feel they have elsewhere. I think they think it's startlingly upfront, yes. Okay, so you decide to do these interviews and to research what you called teal organizations or organizations that are on the journey towards embodying teal more and more and more. What did you find as your most important takeaways? 
Frederick? Well, the most striking thing was how often um, these organizations were working with very similar principles and sometimes outright like similar practices, even though they didn't know of each other. There was really this strange phenomenon where all of these organizations often thought that they were pretty much the only crazy ones that really dared to push the boundaries that much, that really dared to leave behind sort of an old paradigm and experiment their way into a new one. And yet when you looked at them and compared them, the similarities were striking as if you know, there's something in the air that different people are downloading at the same time. Um, so that was really striking. And in the, in the book, I um, synthesized that by talking about three breakthroughs, right? It's three things that simply didn't exist in previous organizations and that seemed to pop up pretty much everywhere you look in these new kind of organizations. Um, and, you know, we, I talk about it in, with the terms of self-management, um, you know, striving for wholeness and and evolutionary purpose, right? And maybe we can start unpacking yeah. know, some of these breakthroughs. I want to talk about all three. Believe it or not, let's start with evolutionary purpose, and then we'll go to wholeness, and we'll spend most of our time on self-management, because I think that's the one that, for many companies, seems the hardest to crack. But first, with evolutionary purpose, you're describing something more than just a reason for being like, okay, our business yeah. exists to blah, blah. But when you say evolutionary purpose, you mean more. What do you mean exactly? I simply mean that the organization is imbued with its own sense of purpose, right? So you were talking about it as the organization yeah. having its own soul. Yeah. And so if we believe that, that really changes a lot of the very concrete you know, practical um, things that we do in organizations, right? So instead of every few years making sort of a big strategic plan, looking down the road for the next three to five years, um, it becomes a process where on a daily basis, we're trying to listen in to where this organization wants to go, right? We're no longer imposing our vision onto the organization. We're actually in a much more humble way trying to see, you know, what would be the right decision, you know, trying to see guidance from the organization itself. Um, it has profound um, implications in terms of targets. You know, um, does it still make sense to impose targets onto the organization when we see that the organization is a living organism? And just like any living organism, sometimes might grow more quickly and sometimes grow more slowly. And you know, um, what point is there in putting targets and objectives onto organizations? So it has very practical implications. Now, you know, I'm very resonant with this idea of kind of the way I put it personally is kind of like having my nose right on the ground and smelling, you know, kind mm -hmm. of like a wild animal, what's needed right now, not making these long-term plans. But a lot of people like, I've noticed that I've worked with here, it sounds true, they like to have plans. They're like, we want to know what's next and then what's beyond that and this will help us. And then I imagine those people who are out there going out and raising money for their business, they certainly want to be able to tell their investors, here's our five-year plan where you're going to get your money out with this. So it, it seems like it goes against some parts of human nature who want to see the plan. It's true. And I think part of it is simply the conditioning, right? We've been so conditioned that we want this form of certainty, right? That plans give us. Um, and I don't misunderstand me. There's nothing wrong there. Sometimes you need to plan. Like, you know, if you're building a bridge, you know, you better plan your way ahead and not just show up every day at work. And so 
there's absolutely a place for planning, but no longer this kind of planning where we cast things in stone. You know, we make now a strategic plan and this is our plan for the next three, five years. But hey, if tomorrow we learn something new, maybe we need to start adapting the plan already, right? So um, what we're really talking about is a shift from this notion of predicting control, which is so central to modernity, right? To the scientific perspective. You know, we want to predict and control nature. We want to predict, predict and control the world to a perspective of sense and respond. You know, yes, we can make plans, but we're constantly sensing and responding whether our plans still make sense and whether they need updating. Um, I think another part of your response is simply sort of the time frame. There's this um, organization in, in, in France that has this beautiful image. They say, most organizations look five years ahead and plan for the next year. And they say, you know, we think like farmers, we plan 20 years ahead. We look 20 years ahead and plan for the next day. Right. Uh -huh. So there's still very much a notion of looking ahead, of having a sense where that journey goes. Um, but then you're just constantly sensing and responding and picking up new signals. Now, the other point you made, and I just want to make sure that we pull this out, was you talked about the business as a living system. Because I think what's so interesting under these three ideas, wholeness, self-management, and evolutionary purpose, is the, the mindset or the heart set that is underpinning the themes that you found. So under evolutionary purpose, this idea that there's a living system that I'm a part of versus something I'm trying to make happen that's outside of me that I'm trying to direct. That's a very different way of being part of an organization. Yeah, that was you know, another fascinating fi finding for me is um, the change of metaphor. So the dominant metaphor of modernity is that the world is a machine, right? In, in medicine, the human body is a machine, right? In agriculture, the earth is a machine with inputs and outputs. And, and the same is true for management, right? Our MBA thinking looks as an organization as a well-oiled machine, right? Where we have human resources as inputs and then you try to maximize your outputs and you know it's full of engineering language. And it's just fascinating to see how consistently organizations who are led by some of these visionary founders or leaders talk about their organization as a living system, as a living entity, as an ecosystem, and use images and language and metaphors from nature. Um, and so that has indeed profound implications. Like, you know, you, um, a machine needs to be programmed, right? Otherwise it doesn't move. So you need a strategic plan and then you need to force execution because by itself it wouldn't move. Whereas a living system, you know, has its own life force. And so we don't actually need to push it that much. We actually just need to invite it in a certain direction that is life-giving. And then the whole system will move in that direction. What ecological metaphors did you find teal organizational leaders using the most? Which types of nature metaphors? Oh, you have... You have everything it's from people using the the human body, right? And with all the different functions, you know, where, you know, what is the heart of the organization? What's the mind of the organization? And you know, what's the gut of the, you know? So those ones to using, you know, talking about about ecosystems and so you, you know, um, yeah, you can really use any one of those. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's move on to this second feature that you found of teal organizations, wholeness. What do you mean by that? 
Yeah, there's something in in most workplaces um, that is unspoken, but there's this often this level of subtle level of fear that makes that it we don't dare to show up um, sort of in the full glory of who we are, right? That we feel it's safer to wear a professional mask or sometimes to wear a whole, you know, a lot of professional masks, right? In most organizations, strangely enough, we feel that it's okay to show up with your ego, you know, fight for your own career or fight for your own team and your budget. And, you know, that's pretty acceptable in meetings. But talk about really the longings of your heart. Talk about what you really hope and wish for. Talk about some of the things that really hurt your integrity. And that quickly becomes risky, right? That in many organizations, you know, might even be sort of career-threatening. Right? So we, we often quickly learn not to talk about the deepest things that move our heart. And, and that's, why I think, why we have so many ego games in organizations, because we're simply left with, with the ego. But in most organizations, you know, people show up, men and women, in a more masculine form um, and, you know, shut down sort of the, the more feminine energies that they have, right? Because in most organizations, we have a culture that values, um, you know, people showing up resolute and knowing exactly what they, what they want and, you know, showing no sense of weakness. And people who show up with doubts and vulnerabilities or, you know, saying, hey, maybe we should slow down and listen more. You know, that's, that's rarely something that makes you, you know, very successful in your career. So, you know, we all show up more resolute than, than we need to be. Um, we all show up with much more rational, um, you know, facts and figures. That's always welcome in, in any discussion and meetings. But our emotional sides, our spiritual sides in most organizations have no place at all. Right. And and so it's a it's a pretty small and sometimes sad version of ourselves that is allowed to show up. Right. Sort of a, a very masculine, ego driven, rational self. And I've come to see that I, I think that if so many organizations feel lifeless, if so many people don't really like going to work, um, it is maybe because we bring very little life to the organization. Because at some deep level, sometimes a conscious level, we feel cheated when our relationships are so transactional, when we cannot show up, you know, with in the whole glory of who we are. Now, Frederick, I want to ask you a question about this, because, you know, here at Sounds True, I've really turned myself into a pretzel, stood upside down, done everything I could to create an environment where people would feel safe to come forward and bring their full selves to work. But the people who work here are part of our culture as a whole. And a lot of people report that they're just afraid to do so. And they're not going to do so because they're just afraid. Even though no one, it sounds true, has been punished. I'm just reflecting that we live as part of a bigger culture where many people come from families that didn't handle confrontation well, didn't reward speaking up. Even when organizations have this value system, it's not that easy to get everybody to come and bring their whole selves to work. Yeah, that's true. And that's why... Of course, it has to remain an invitation, right? Like if it if it becomes something that you force onto people, um, you know that becomes another fearful mechanism. Oh no, you know here yeah. I have to open up, right? Um, yeah. Um, but that being said, like I I I just see organizations where people suddenly wake up to um, express themselves in different ways, 
um, uh, there was a sentence that I've heard in three different organizations, and, and that was just so fascinating, where people said a version of, you know, sometimes I wish my life at home was more like my life at work, right? And, and what they meant by that is that in, in some organizations, um, you know, you create a, a space that feels safe enough to start to show up whole. You know, we, of course, the journey is never done. You know, we never fully hold. You know, there's always new facets that we discover about ourselves. But a space where I feel safe enough to say some of the things that I might not necessarily feel safe enough to say even at home with my own spouse or my own children. And that just, that just touched me deeply. You know, the, the, the possibility that that, you know, can exist in organizations. And what have you discovered in your research are the keys to an organization inviting that kind of wholeness, creating enough safety where people really feel like, yeah, I, I can do this at work. Yeah, it's a, it's a culture that, you know, builds over time. Of course, you know, doesn't change from one day to the other, but it, a lot of it has to do with creating a safe space. And we know how to do this quite well, right? We have actually known this for hundreds of thousands of years, right? In, in a lot of spiritual circles and a lot of, you know, personal development workshops, you know, we know how to create spaces where people very quickly feel safe enough to, you know, to show up in a more authentic way. Um, the trick is to do that in an organization day in, day out, where you know that you'll meet the same people over and over again, you know, not just, you know, random participants of a workshop that you might not, never see again. But So we actually know quite well what are the, the conditions to create, what are the kind of facilitation that is needed to create a space. But, but then what is also needed is to start bringing that into all of the daily practices, say, and into all of the HR practices, right? Because if you want to create that kind of safety, you can't do performance evaluation in the old way. Hey, you can't do recruiting in the old way. Like recruiting is, is often the place where the lying starts, right? I mean, when, when I, you know, write my, my bio, my, my curriculum to send it to an organization, you know, that, there's parts of it that I want to, of my life that I want to hide and some other parts that I might to exaggerate. And in many ways, the organization does the same. So, you know, think about it. You know, it's often at the moment of recruitment that the lying starts and both yeah. sides kind of know that the other side is lying a bit and is trying to poke holes into what they're saying to say, like, is this real for real? Right. And so it's a fascinating question about how can we start doing recruitment in a different way where we don't start off um, from this place of, of, of lying, but but really from the beginning have very profound and meaningful conversations. Hi friends, my name is Jono Fisher. I'm the executive director of the Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is a new non-profit organization dedicated to bringing the benefits of transformational education to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. A prisoner wrote to us and shared his experience of how a Sounds True program changed his life. He said, I've been sitting in the chapel sound room, listening to one of your programs about healing the father-son wound. I've always hated my father, but never knew why, nor have I wanted to change the way I feel. As I listened, I began to bawl like a baby, 
I'm glad I was alone because I couldn't stop myself. I called my dad that night and asked him if he would visit, which he's not done since I came to prison. Thanks to Sounds True for letting me feel something positive for the first time in years. If you'd like to learn more about how the Sounds True Foundation is helping change lives or to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. Now, you said that we've known for hundreds and hundreds of years how to create a space where people feel comfortable speaking up. And I know you're someone, Frederick, just from my conversations with you, you elicit that from people. You elicit a type of genuineness. What are you doing inside yourself? I'd like you to articulate it, because even though you said we've known it for hundreds of years, I don't know if everybody knows how to do it. Yeah, and I don't know if I, I know how to do it consistently, but um, yeah, from what we know, um, it has to do both with our presence and the number of ground rules, right, that we offer in the space, right? And, and you really need both. So there's something about the presence of the facilitator or in some of these organizations of the organizational leader that really comes into the space with a certain um, fearlessness and a certain egolessness and a certain capacity for compassion and love and for welcoming everything that is to be welcomed, right? There's something about the presence that you offer that allows other people to feel like it's safe enough to drop your masks. And then it's a number of ground rules that you set for these spaces, right? Um, ground rules like, hey, you know, no fixing, no advising. Um, you know, no judging of other people and, and feeling the safety that if that is starting to happen, somebody will intervene. You know, there's a facilitator or the organization leader who will intervene and say, remember, this is not how we're working. So that people feel safe enough to, um, to go out there and, and show different parts of themselves. Now, I saved this third feature that you found in Teal Organizations for Last because I think it's the most challenging. It's the most revolutionary. I mean, it's one thing to say the business is a living organism. Let's listen to what it needs. It's another thing to say we want people to have honest and authentic conversations and be themselves. It's another thing to say we're smashing the traditional C-suite and the hierarchy that most organizations learn about in business school, and we're creating self-managed organizations. So describe this feature and help people really understand it, Frederick, because I think as you point out in the book, Reinventing Organizations, there's a lot of misconceptions about this. Yeah, there's a lot of misconceptions and a lot of unlearning and, and relearning uh, to be done. So I, I don't know if I can summarize it well, but I'll do my best. Um, so, I mean, the, the simple fact uh, you know, of reality is that we just see more and more and more organizations out there, including some really large organizations um, of several thousand people, you know, 10,000, 14,000 people that operate um, entirely with distributed authority. So entirely on a self-managing basis. So no more... Um, layers of hierarchy, no more pyramid, no more boss-subordinate relationship, right? And, and that sounds absolutely crazy because we've all grown up with the idea that, you know, maybe you can have a team of four or five people, you know, who work as equals, but 
beyond that, you know, at some point, come on, let's be honest, we need a boss, we need structure, we need somebody to call the shots. And the truth is that, yes, we need structure, but we don't absolutely, we don't need hierarchy in a traditional sense, power hierarchy of, I am your boss, I have power over you. And we now know that we can design and create these extraordinarily vibrant, extraordinarily productive systems that operate with distributed authority. Um, and while saying that, I imagine that for most people who might listen to our conversation, that brings up all sorts of ideas and all sorts of misconceptions. Um, the, the most typical misconception is, oh, okay, but that if you don't have hierarchy, that brings us back to sort of 1960s, 1970s, hippy-dippy, you know, we're all equal, you know, we're all sitting in a big circle and we're all going to talk till we die, you know, until we finally get consensus. And it's, yeah. And that's not what these organizations are like at all. Um, so these organizations aren't a big structuralist blob, um, but are actually very structured organizations with very clear rules of the games of who can make what decision, you know, based on what criteria um, and what are the structures and, you know, who holds what roles. Um, so there's just as much structure, um, if not more, than in traditional organizations. It's just a structure where people no longer have power over other people. I think it would be good to give our listeners an example or two of businesses that are operating this way. Yeah. Um, one organization that I, um, that I love in particular is a, a Dutch um, organization of neighborhood nurses. So these are nurses that don't uh, work in hospitals, but go and see uh, patients in their own homes, um, often older people or people who've had you know, chronic diseases or have had accidents. And it's now an organization of 14,000 people. Um, they grew incredibly quickly. You know, they were founded 12 years ago with four people. They're now 14,000. Um, they have you know, something like two thirds or you know, three quarters now, I imagine, of, of market share in the Netherlands. And they're voted every year best employer of the Netherlands. I mean, it's just an amazing story. And these 14,000 people um, all work in self-managing teams. Um, and so these nurses work in teams of 10 to 12. There is no team leader, as you would expect. So there's no head nurse in, in the team, but simply the, 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 the various roles that the manager would have held if there was a team leader is now distributed among the other nurses, right? So um, let's talk about the typical roles of a manager, right? One role might be to recruit people. One role might be to make sure that everybody's happy. Another role might be to make sure that we hit the numbers. Uh, another role might be to deal with conflicts, um, to set a vision, to, you know, to make the planning. And all of these roles are now distributed among these 10 to 12 nurses. So maybe Tammy, you know, you're an actual planner. So you, know, you do the weekend planning and, and the holiday planning. And maybe people naturally come to me with conflict. So anyway, let, you know, let me be the person who deals with conflict and so forth. And so people just distribute these roles, rotate them regularly. Oh, I have too much work. Can somebody do the planning instead of me um, for the next two months because I'm, I'm really swamped. Um, and they operate in, in that way. Um, and one of the things that these teams all do when they get formed is that they get some basic training about, okay, so how do we make decisions in this team of 10 to 12 that isn't painful consensus um, in the absence of a manager? How do we deal with conflict you know, if there isn't a manager to call the shots? And so they, they learn some of these basic processes of self-management, and then they just go out there and do, and do their work. Um, and it's incredible how productive they are when they're no longer distract, distracted 
by sort of the politics and the, the power games that you typically have uh, with, my, you know, with managerial positions. Frederick, even in setting up a structure like this and deciding what the structure should be, was that done in a self-managed way or did some visionary founder decide, I'd like to have a self-managed situation where I'm the public face of this, but I'm not as you know involved in the work in the way a traditional CEO would be? Yeah, so uh, Birchark is, is really sort of the brainchild of um, Georges de Bloch, um, who is himself a nurse and um, was just too sick and tired of how these traditional nursing organizations were, were run. And so he created Birdstock and he sort of had this self-managing vision. And then they just stumbled upon this and, you know, just found these, these roles when they were growing. At some point they were a team of 10 to 12 and then they realized, hey, you know, let's just make this a new ground rule. Like every team of 10 to 12 needs to split up if they get larger than this. And so they just with a lot of common sense, stumbled their way into this way of working. Um, but there's no doubt that there's that Jean de Bloch played a very strong role. And so um, that is um, not at all contradictory. So you can, you know, some, a lot of these organizations have very strong, powerful visionaries, people who have this very strong vision of how they want to run things differently. Um, but Jean de Bloch, you know, now sort of the founder and, and head of this organization of 14,000 people, has to play by the exact same rules as the other people. He cannot impose a decision onto the organization. Or, you know, if he, if he were to try, he would very quickly get a lot of pushback from nurses who would say, hey, no, no, this is not how we do things here. So he has a lot of power through his natural authority, but not a power through his positional um, you know, authority. And that is one of the other frequent misunderstandings around self-management um, is that what we're trying to do is uh, dismantle the power hierarchy, right? So I have power over you, Tammy, because I'm your boss. So I can decide whether, you know, your idea will be implemented. I can decide whether you get a cool project. I can decide whether you get a raise or whether you get fired. So we take away that power that I hold over you, which often is so poisonous. But what then happens is the contrary of flatland, the contrary of equality, um, in the sense of we want natural hierarchies to spring up. You know, you're great at planning, so by any means, you know, you do planning. And this other nurse is great at, you know, she's just a living encyclopedia of all of these arcane conditions. So she gets a lot of recognition. Everybody goes to see her about this, you know, and I'm respected for this other skill. And people come to see me. And so Jean de Bloch is highly respected. And when he puts an idea out there and suggests a decision, people will listen because they have a lot of respect for him. So you have a, you know, a lot of um, natural authority rather than positional authority in these organizations. And just to describe the difference between what you're calling natural hierarchy from a power-based hierarchy. I mean, I could imagine someone saying, well, look, the reason the person became the chief financial officer was because they had special skills in finance and strategy. That's why they got, I mean, what's really the difference when it comes down to it between a natural hierarchy and a traditional power-based hierarchy? Um, it's that the, the natural hierarchy, um, you, you cannot impose something onto the organization, right? So there's a decision mechanism um, that is often called the advice process that you have to play by whatever your level of authority, because 
whatever your level of authority, you can make mistakes. You know, you can be too far removed from a situation. And it's happened to Justin Locke. You know, there's a famous example at, at Birzor where he suggested to change the way we calculate overtime, right? And he suggested that to the nurses. Um, and the nurses said, hey, no, Joss, you know, you know, obviously you identified a problem here, but your solution is way too simplistic. You, you're just too far from the field now. Um, and, and, you know, it's great that this organization, this living entity, could react in that way. In a traditional organization, this would have been imposed onto 14,000 nurses, you know, who would have then, you know, grudgingly have to accept it. The whole system would have worked. It would have, like, been so dispiriting. It would have been caused a lot of mayhem. And maybe six months later, the whole thing would have been revisited. You know, here, the system naturally reacted to Joste Bloch's proposal. And can you describe how the advice process works, the principles behind it, not necessarily how it works in any one organization? Yeah, so I alluded to it earlier that often we think about the fact that there's only two ways to make decision, right? Either it's sort of hierarchical, top-down, you know, I'm in a position of power and I make that decision, or it's consensus. We all sit in a circle and we talk endlessly until we, we get a decision, right? And, and both of these don't, don't really work that well. Um, and it's been one of those fascinating discoveries is that all of the self-managing organizations that I researched all operate with one version of another um, of a third decision-making ma making mechanism um, that is sometimes called the advice process. And the principle is very simple, is that any person in the organization can make any decision, uh, small or large, but before making that decision has to ask people for advice um, and has to ask people who have expertise, right? It would be stupid not to ask people who know something about a topic that you're going to make a decision about, and has to ask people who will be meaningfully impacted by that decision. Right? So I feel it's, I have a sense that something could be better. I have to talk to people who have expertise about this and people who will be meaningfully affected by this. And after I've spoken to these people, I've, I listen to all of the input I receive and I can make a decision. So I don't need anybody's approval. I don't need consensus, but I need to listen to the right voices in the room. And that is just an incredibly powerful mechanism. Um, and so Joste Bloch has to operate in that way too. And it's really quite fascinating how that plays out. Um, so if you imagine that it's a small decision, if it's a really small decision, maybe I don't need to ask anybody, I just make the decision. You know, maybe I just need, there's just one person that's impacted and I just talk to that one person. Maybe it's just our team and I bring that into our next team meeting. Um, but sometimes it's the whole organization. Right? And it, it happens, you know, at, at Bjorzorg, somebody um, has, feels that something needs to change that will affect all 14,000 people working there. Well, then you need to ask these 14,000 people for advice. Um, and that sounds at first like usually impractical, like how would you ever do that? Um, but Joseph Bloch has found a very simple way, like when he does it and other people at Bjorzorg do it too. Um, he writes a blog post um, on their internal social network. They have sort of an internal Facebook. Um, where he says, hey, you know, I've, I've been thinking about this and I really feel that we need to make this decision and here's my proposal. And he sends it out as such, you know, with typos and all, it doesn't go through an internal communication department. And typically within 24 hours, um, you know, roughly two thirds of the nurses will have read his blog post. And then the comments just start rolling in, right? People can just comment below the blog post. And, and that requires a level of 
of egolessness and fearlessness, right, from a leader like Joshua Block, because none of that is filtered. It's all public to see, um, including people who disagree with them. Um, but then typically within 24 hours, 48 hours, you know, he'll read all of the comments and then say, yeah, sounds like, you know, I was onto something, you know, people mostly agree with my proposal. So, you know, it's confirmed. This is a decision. Or maybe he'll say, hmm, it's interesting. I learned a lot through your comments. And so I've refined my, my proposal. And so this is now sort of a refined decision. Um, and in certain cases, um, as was the case when he proposed a new way to calculate overtime, he will simply say, oh, oops, you know, my proposal was premature. There's obviously way more, you know, that I needs to be considered. And, you know, I'll take more time or, you know, who wants to help me work on this? Um, and so that's sort of the decision-making cycle of, you know, 24 hours, 48 hour decision-making cycle um, that implies the whole organization. It's, it's incredibly fast and efficient. Now, Frederick, there's so much to talk about when it comes to an organization either being self-managed from the outset or transitioning from a more traditional corporate structure. But I want to begin by just understanding how many organizations are you in touch with that you would say are very actively on the journey towards self-management? I mean, we're talking about 100 companies or 1,000 companies or 10,000? Um, I would estimate that there must be... Um, a thousand or a few thousands who are on the way, who are earnestly on the way, um, simply because I just see things popping up by chance in on Facebook, on my emails. And so I, every time I hear about one, I put them in, in an Excel sheet. And, you know, I, I probably have about 200 organizations that I know of are on the way. There must be so many more you know, that, I've, that I never hear about. Um, uh, and... And it's interesting, obviously, for smaller organizations, it's easier, right? Like if you're an organization of 10 or 20 or 30 people, it's, it's much faster than if you're a larger organization. But it's quite fascinating to see that we start to see really large organizations go in that direction too. Um, the, the biggest one I know of is um, Michelin, the, the tire maker. Um, you know, they have plants all over the world making tires. Um, it's an organization of 110,000 people. And the executive committee just decided that, um, you know, they would um, invite their 70,000 uh, people in the factories, their blue 70,000 blue-collar workers, to operate in self-managing teams and would also start to bring it to the, so the 40,000 white-collar workers, right? So let's see how that experiment goes. I mean, their, their pilots were very successful. They've, they've, you know, done this with 38 teams in different plants all around the world, including in, in China and very different cultures, and it's been successful, but but nobody's attempted to bring it yet to the scale of 70,000 people. So that's just going to be fascinating to see how that how that plays out. But but there's a very clear sense now that I have that that you know the train has left the station. Like there's I mean there's no coming back for this wave of experimentation um, that that started and is pretty unprecedented. No, I know you recently released a video teaching series on self-management, and it's at your website, reinventingorganizations.com. You're doing this with the gift economy model, yet another kind of experimental way of running your own personal business in, in this case. So let's just take a little aside here. Why did you decide to do this with a gift economy model where people can pay what they think it's worth? Um, because I, 
there's just something I felt wrong putting it behind a paywall. Like I want, you know, organizations to start doing this and restricting access just feel felt wrong. On the other hand, I feel that this work deserves income, right? Um, I'm putting a lot of time and hours into this. And so the, the only way I found to reconcile this was to work in, in the gift economy. And then as you say, I, I think it's just a fascinating experiment. I mean, the, the book itself, the, the ebook version of the book um, in English has always been available um, in a pay what feels right fashion. And I, I almost don't do any consulting or you know, coaching work, but every once in a while there's leaders of organizations who travel all the way to this small eco-village in upstate New York where I live. And, and I operate always in that way. And I say, okay, we can spend a day together and at the end you decide what you pay me. Um, and I just feel like it, it makes things so much easier rather than me having to put a price, price tag on it. Um, and um, yeah, and I, I think it's just part of growing into this new paradigm. I've been very touched and influenced by work from Charles Eisenstein, among other, you know, who's, who's written about sacred economics and, and the gift economy. And so this is just my, my own attempt of playing a little part in this. Mm-hmm. And part of the reason also that I wanted to tell our listeners that you have this video teaching series is there are so many questions that might be coming up in people's minds about self-management. And if people are listening and you really want to have these questions answered in more detail, we're obviously not going to be able to get to all of them here. But I am going to ask just a couple more specifics. So let's say someone's an underperformer, but they're in a self-managed organization and they don't have a boss. How do Mm -hmm. they get the feedback they need and possibly shown the way out of the organization, otherwise known as being fired, if they don't have a boss or a manager? Yeah, um, this very practical question, which happens all the time in these organizations, right? So they they deal with that like any other organization. Um, uh, Versus two interesting findings is, you know, when we're no longer operating with these boxes in you know, the org chart, right? When we no longer have these fixed job titles and job descriptions, but can actually in much more flexible ways find, you know, the roles that suit our strength, um, you actually find that many people that might otherwise, you know, be deemed insufficient in that particular job find places where they actually really can contribute, right? And so you see this happening in self-managing organizations all the time. Right, you know, I start working here, but then actually I realize, like, yeah, I'm not that good at this, and I'm actually not that interested in this. But my interest is in here, and you start seeing the most amazing things um, with people splitting their time. You know, I'm I'm working at my little manufacturing team, but really, you know, I'm I'm doing the the continuous improvement more than standing on a machine because that's really not my thing. And I'm doing a little bit of recruitment, and I'm even writing some blog posts for the marketing team. Right, so you actually see these things happening. So. Many more people find their strength um, than you do in traditional organizations. That's one thing. The other thing is that a lot of people simply leave when they notice that it's, it isn't working. So what you have in traditional organizations is, you know, if I'm underperforming and I kind of sense that I'm underperforming, all my teammates know. I mean, they see it. But, you know, as long as my boss doesn't realize, you know, I'm safe, right? So I play all these games where I'm trying to look good towards my boss and everybody else is frustrated with me. <laughs> Right, but but as long as he or she doesn't notice it, you know, I'm 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 safe. Now, when there is no boss and you're just working with all of your peers, like it's pretty obvious. Like people see it, people give you feedback, people, you know. So, um, a lot of people leave and simply say, like, yeah, sounds like this is not my my place. So, 
um, the number of cases where people are actually fired, as you were saying, is pretty low. I mean, this is really just the cases where, for some reason, people are, have gotten into some negative spiral where they're not willing to accept the feedback from their team members. And they just, you know, staunchly insist that, no, no, they're doing a good job, even though everybody else around them says that, that they're not, right? And in those cases, um, you need conflict resolution practices. You know, you need um, places where you can actually discuss that. And you come to the conclusion of, hey, you know, it, it, so you often have outsiders who come in and, you know, just, hey, you don't seem to get the message that everybody in the team is willing, has been willing to help you, has been willing to try to uh, bring you up to speed and you know it's not working and then you know you no longer have the trust of the team so it sounds like you know it's time for you to leave that's interesting so the use of these outside coaches or consultants who can come in and be sort of quote-unquote referees in a situation or advisors in a situation yeah it's, it's often people simply from other teams in the organization right um so at beardsorg for instance they have now the you know more than a thousand teams of, of, of these you know, 10 to 12 nurses, and they have, um, I don't know what the latest number is, probably 25 coaches who are simply there to help teams, including in some of these very difficult conversations. And so these, these coaches have no formal authority. They cannot formally fire that person, but they can just simply get the whole team to realize, and that person within the team, to realize that, hey, this isn't working out, like it's time for you to leave. Mm-hmm. Now, Frederick, do you see that the next stage of our corporate life, like you're calling these next stage organizations, teal organizations that have these qualities, self-management, wholeness, evolutionary purpose, that in X number of years, this is where my question's going, 20, 30, 40, how many years, this will become the norm when you go to business school, you learn about how businesses operate this way. Are people not gonna need MBAs in the same kind of way because their education is going to be so radically different. Instead, they're going to do tree meditations or something, and you'll become qualified to understand ecological flows. What do you see? Oh, boy, I wish I had a crystal ball and I could answer that question. Um, you know, it's, it's just like, you know, we've outgrown past ways of thinking, right? Like, you know, we've outgrown sort of a, a feudal way of thinking, right? Um, and, uh, but in the beginning, you know, sort of the scientific sort of industrial way of thinking was all new and it was just a few percent of the population and then it just, it just, it just spread. Um, and the, the only thing I can say is if you map these stages of human consciousness, right? Sort of, you know, hunter-gatherers and tribal and ag- agrarian and scientific industrial and postmodern and now sort of integral, if you map them on, on a timeline, it's an exponential curve. Like, you know, the, you know, it took us, you know, 100,000 years to go from hunter-gatherers, you know, to, to, to tribal. And then it took us 10,000 years to go to agrarian. And then, you know, agrarian has been a few thousand years. And then the scientific industrial, you know, has just been 200 years. And the postmodern has barely been 50 years. And now something new is coming up. So I don't know if there's a you know, a law of nature or of evolution playing out there, but it just seems that evolution is accelerating. And if that is true, you know, then, you know, this could maybe, maybe the world might look very different in 20 and 30 years. And in many ways, um, I'm hoping it is because from everything we know, we don't have that much time. You know, so many of our, of our natural system are collapsollapsing. And so, you know, there really seems to be a race going on between 
the damage that we do and the consciousness that we're growing into. And I'm just hoping that, you know, we're growing quickly enough into a new form of consciousness that makes for the survival of the human species and, and other ecosystems. Now, Frederick, when I think of you operating within the gift economy for your new training series on self-management and even some of the work that you've done in profiling certain organizations that people could say, well, that's a unicorn. There's a couple unicorns out there. I can imagine people thinking, you know, Frederick, he's kind of, ready, here's the word, idealistic. And I wonder what you think about that when you hear that. Like, I'm sure this isn't the first time you've heard someone say, well, that's very idealistic, Frederick. What do you think about that? Well, it's interesting because few people who've read the book actually use that term. So I've, I've I rarely get people telling me that I'm uh-huh. right. Like it's just go out there, like you know, look at how Beardsorg operates and look how Favi operates, and you know, WL Gore has been operating in self management for fifty years and been extraordinarily successful. And um, so I, I think it's easy to see that as idealistic if you haven't looked into it, right? Is rather like people, you know, poo pooing meditations and the benefits of meditations if they've never meditated, right? Um, so, so yeah, I've, I've had a lot of people say like, oh, self-management, I can never work, right? But then they've never actually looked at it, right? It's, um, sometimes it makes me, me smile like, you know, somebody would say, you know, standing in the middle of a forest and would say, you know what? It's impossible that a living organism grows into 100 feet high. And you say like, well, just look at there's a tree right in front of you, but no, 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 that's impossible. Like, you know, um, and so I think the same thing is true for, for these organizations. So I'm actually not being called an, an idealist that often. And then finally, what's next for you, Frederick? I mean, here you are, you have this way of listening to how life moves through you, what's called for you. You're a very interesting person to me. You really have, I think, a sense of the pulse of life unfolding. What's next for you? Yeah, I think I have another six months completing this video series where I'm really trying to share everything that I've learned since the book came out about how traditional organizations, traditionally run organizations can make that leap. Um, And then, you know, just half a day or a day a week, I've started researching into what might perhaps become another book that um, asks sort of a similar question, but not about organizational governance, but about political governance. Right, like you know, an increasing number of people sense that our political systems, democracy, um, as we practice it now, um, is sort of no longer able to deal with the complexities of our times. You know, seems exhausted, and there are experiments that are fascinating happening all around the world in, in the United States, in Europe, and in Asia, um, with sort of radically more participative forms of of democracy. And, and I'm quite fascinated by that and trying to see if I look at these different experiments, are there some common underlying principles that would point to what might come beyond democracy as we practice it now? Well, I'm so glad you're on it. Thank you, <laughs> Frederick Laloux. Frederick can be visited at the website reinventingorganizations.com. It's a great site. It has a lot of interesting training materials. I want to thank you so much for being with us here on Insights at the Edge. He's the author of the book, Reinventing Organizations, a guide to creating organizations inspired by the next stage of human consciousness. 
And in a, a moment of transparency with our listeners, Sounds True is one of the organizations that was featured in the section of the book that talks about wholeness and what it means to bring our whole selves to work. And we're also here in transition from a more hierarchical organization to a self-managed organization. And I have to say, it's quite an interesting, bumpy, messy, worthy experiment, and I'm way into it. And thank you, Frederick. You've been part of the inspiration. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tammy. Thanks for listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. At Sounds True, we are dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely accessible. The new Sounds True Foundation exists to remove financial barriers and make sure that people in communities of need have access to transformational tools and teachings. You can find out more at SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You can also read a full transcript of this episode at SoundsTrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you haven't already done so, and you want to subscribe to Insights at the Edge, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in your listening app. And if you hear something that really matters to you, that changes you, then share that insight and this podcast with others. Together, we can wake up the world. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to being with you next time. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. <laughs>